Welcome to the podcast of Seven Rivers Presbyterian Church in Lakanto, Florida. Our passion is to be a church that enjoys God, experiences His grace, and reflects His love to our community and beyond. To join our local body in financial support of this ministry, visit our website at sevenrivers.org. If you're willing and able, why don't you stand and read God's word together? Okay. Like I said, we're in this third week here of Love Walked Among Us. We're going to look at truth telling. Truth telling. Jesus was a truth teller. All right, this is God's word, several different passages, beginning first with Matthew. Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, for you are like whitewashed tombs, which outwardly appear beautiful, but within you're full of dead people's bones and all uncleanliness. Isaiah 42, a bruised reed he will not break, a faintly burning wick he will not quench. He will faithfully bring forth justice. If your brother sins against you, go and tell him his fault between you and him alone. If he listens to you, you have gained a brother. From Hebrews, for the word of God is living and active, sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing the division of the soul and of the spirit, of joints and marrow, discerning the thoughts and the intentions of the heart. And then Matthew 22, then the Pharisees, went and plotted how to entangle him in his words. And they sent their disciples to him, along with the Herodians, saying, Teacher, we know you are true and teach the way of God truthfully, and you do not care about anyone's opinion, for you are not swayed by appearances. Paul and Corinthians. Now it is required that those who have been given a trust prove faithful. I care very little if I am judged by you or any human court. Indeed, I do not even judge myself. My conscience is clear, but that does not make me innocent. It is the Lord who judges me. This is a saying that is trustworthy and deserving full acceptance. Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners, of whom I am the foremost. In the Psalms, Let a righteous man strike me. It is a kindness. Let him rebuke me. It is oil for my head. Let my head not refuse it. Proverbs. Better is open rebuke than hidden love. Faithful are the wounds of a friend. Profuse are the kisses of the enemy. This is God's word. Every bit of it is true. And he gives it to us because he loves us. You may be seated. Truth telling. You know, sometimes it's just needed. You know, love oftentimes needs to confront the ugly. Sometimes love needs to be direct It needs to be bold, it needs to be disruptive. It just needs to get in there in the messy and do some tough love. 
You know, kids, kids tell the truth, right? Kids can tell the truth and they'll just kind of let you have it and just tell it how it is. My daughter was uh, babysitting one time, a little girl, and the little girl was asking her all these questions. Do, Do you love blueberries? Do you like cake? Do you like green beans? And then her eyes got really big and she said, do you like beer? My mom loves beer. <laughs> Kids. You know, truth telling is needed, uh, but sometimes it's hard to know when to tell the truth to other people and when not to. So sometimes you just have to have wisdom to when to confront people with love. So, like when your wife says to you, Does this dress make me look fat? Yeah, you may not want to tell the truth then. But God's word tells us to speak the truth in love, to lovingly confront the sin in one another. But we avoid conflict, we avoid truth telling. And when we do tell the truth, often we wish we had not. Because sometimes there's people who will take the truth, take truth telling as a license to destroy others. The recipients can be defensive. And you just know it intuitively in you sometimes that some people that you need to tell the truth to, they're not really safe. And they would do much harm. Relationships can get stuck and empty and be dead. You just can't talk to them. It's just not worth it. Pearls before swine. However, if we abandon truth-telling, we allow people to hurt themselves or others with their own willfulness Each of us can easily slip into an isolated, self-righteous life unless we're confronted with the truth. Your spouse drinks too much. Your college son is hiding something. Your dad is self-righteous and he's always right and he doesn't listen to any differing opinions. Your mom. She's a religious overtalker. And sometimes you just wish she didn't have a Bible verse for everything. Your spouse does not help with the kids, and resentment is rising. There's not been intimacy in your marriage for years. You and your friend haven't spoken since the election. Anger, angry outbursts, and defensiveness are the family norm. Your sibling is selfishly maneuvering to get more of your inheritance. Your spouse has an unhealthy relationship with food. A family member will never get off their screens to just talk. You have a coworker who's habitually lazy. And the boss is not doing anything. Dan Allender says this. Bold love is not reckless or cruel. 
It is not beating up another in the name of sharing or intervention. Bold love is courageous, setting aside our personal agenda to move humbly into a world, the world of others, with their well-being in view, willing to risk further pain in our souls in order to be an aroma of life to some and an aroma of death to others, boldly loving with the energy of Christ. Love walked among us. Can we learn to love with truth-telling? We'll take a sermon outline. Let's look at this together. First, truth-telling, bold love, the bold love of Jesus. There was this interesting movement on college campuses a few years ago called Safe Places. And it was a mindset that was pushed forth by the students themselves that they needed to be safe emotionally on campus. They needed to be safe to escape ideas and speech that would hurt their feelings. Safe ideologically, safe emotionally, to feel good, to be coddled more, and not challenged so much. Well, Van Jones, a professor and political activist, pushed back at his university. This is what he wrote. I don't want you to be safe ideologically. I don't want you to be safe emotionally. I want you to be strong. I'm not going to pave the jungle for you. Put on some boots and learn to deal with adversity. I'm not gonna take all the weights out of the gym. That's the whole point of the gym. I want you to be offended every single day on this campus. And I want you to be deeply aggrieved and offended and upset and then learn how to graciously speak back. You see, we have come to look at love like safe spaces. That love is being nice. Forgive, forget, don't offend anybody, you know. Just be nice and, and keep everybody happy. And, and boy, you just gotta walk on eggshells because you don't wanna rock the boat. But the kind of love that Jesus modeled has nothing to do with manners or being emotionally safe. His love was, was shrewd and, and courageous and bold and disruptive and was powerful to bring healing. Because see, there's nothing, there's nothing redemptive about our love if it just always lets people stay where they are sometimes. Jesus did not. Jesus confronted the religious leaders, calling them whitewashed tombs, greedy, self-indulgent, hypocrites. They had all the cultural power, and Jesus stood up to them. Jesus is talking to Pilate, one of my favorite scenes in the Bible, and he tells Pilate, who has all the power, he says to Pilate, you have no power over me. <laughs> Jesus says to Peter, get behind me, Satan. Jesus boldly loves the truth and people. And he is relentless to bring the two together. He blows up every bridge of self-salvation to bring us to the end of ourselves. 
You know, Jesus confronts Saul, who became Paul, on the road to Damascus. Makes him go blind, right? And then he says to Saul, why are you persecuting me? It's like he's saying, hey, tough guy, we're done with that kind of life. You're following me now. Hebrews 4, for the word of God is living and active Sharper than a two-edged sword, piercing the division of the soul and the spirit. That God's word is a sword that cuts deeply. Jesus is the word of God in the flesh. And he cuts deeply to bring healing. George Whitfield was a great 18th century evangelist. And he would travel the country preaching the gospel, and thousands and thousands of people would gather. But there was a group of, of men who hounded him, a group of detractors called the Hellfire Club. And they would go to these evangelistic gatherings and they would mock him. And they would disrupt all the people that were coming. And they'd try to cause as much chaos as they could. And there was one of them by the name of Mr. Thorpe. And one time Mr. Thorpe was mimicking Whitfield. He was, he was acting out one of his sermons in front of his cronies over on the side. And as he was doing it, he was, he was presenting the sermon with great accuracy. And he was mocking Whitfield's hand motions and facial expressions in the whole nine yards. And his cronies were laughing and they were so impressed by it. But in the middle of Thorpe reciting one of Whitfield's sermons, he was struck in the heart. He was pierced. And he literally sat down on the ground in front of them and he was converted. Jesus is the word of God. Jesus is God. He's bold, direct with the arrogant. But he's gentle, but still firm with the weak. A bruised reed he will not break. You know, with Peter, Jesus told Peter, you're going to betray me. You're going to fail me. You're going to feel a lot of shame and self-loathing. And he was preparing Peter. Preparing Peter for when he would come back to him. And then in John 8, you know, Jesus is, he is he's, he's tough on the religious people holding the stones, ready to stone the adulterous woman. But then he turns to her with gentleness and directness and says, Daughter, go and sin no more. Judas, one of Jesus' closest friends. Yet Judas was the betrayer. And at the end of the Gospels, we're told that Satan had already entered into Judas. Yet Jesus invited him, welcomed him, and fed Judas in the upper room. And Jesus did not out him in front of the others. There was no shaming or scolding. He didn't make any attempt to draw the others into the drama. There was no mobbing up or teaming up on Judas, even though to betray Jesus was to betray the entire group. Instead, Jesus covers for Judas. And he says to the 12, one of you is going to betray me. But in that moment, he's saying to Judas, I see you, Judas. I'm not going to condemn you, but I am going to challenge you. 
D.A. Carson says this. He says, Jesus confronting love here is remarkable. He shows restraint. He refuses to expose or humiliate the soon-to-be betrayer. He boldly loves this man to whom Satan himself resigns. Jesus could have shattered Judas. But he wants to melt him. He could have condemned him. He could have had everybody team up on him. But he wanted to convict him. This is, this is perfect thread the needle gentleness. And the most amazing meshing of direct confronting love with grace. If we want to learn to love like Jesus has loved, then we have to realize we need to go beyond just getting along with others. And we need to be introduced to the idea, the outrageous idea, that God could actually use you to significantly impact the life of another person. But could it be, could it be that the reason that we don't tell the truth in love is that we don't actually believe that God could change people? What if Jesus had never confronted Paul? What if Peter, what if Paul had never confronted Peter? Or Nathan? What if Nathan had not boldly confronted David? What if Anne had not confronted Adam? So where do we get the power? Where do we get the power to love and confront others with the truth? Second, truth-telling security. Look at Matthew 22 again. The Pharisees sent their disciples to Jesus. Teacher, we know you are the truth. You teach the way of God truthfully. You're a truth teller. You tell the truth. But then look at this. And you do not care about anyone's opinion. For you are not swayed by appearances. Do you see what they're doing there? They're giving Jesus a compliment. <laughs> it's the only time in the Bible that religious leaders give Jesus a compliment. And their compliment is, they're just marveled by it. They can't understand it. That he teaches the truth, but he doesn't care what other people think. He's not swayed by status or appearance or, or rank and file and culture. It's like he just tells the truth and he's free from that. Paul Miller says this, that Jesus' God consciousness explains his extraordinary bold love. He knows God is watching, enjoying, and loving him. Because he has the love of God, he doesn't need other people to love him or approve of him. Now, this is where we lose our way. We hunger for the approval of others. We avoid conflict and truth-telling because we don't have the security to confront others with love. Now, we, have, we won't do it. We have all kinds of excuses as to why we won't do it. But this is the core issue, why we will not do it. Uh, comedian and talk show host uh, Ellen De uh, DeGeneres, um, she, uh, she was very clever one time years ago, and uh, she said this at the height of her popularity. She said, 
that underneath her sleeve of her shirt, she has a patch, a fictitious patch. It's called the approval patch is what she called it. And it kind of works like a nicotine patch, she said. Anytime she has the cravings for the approval of other people, the little approval patch will release a little bit of approval from other people into her system, and it, and it will comfort her. And she says, I can't take that approval patch off until the cravings to please people is gone. And she says, and it will never stop. You see, we have a strong craving for approval. And so we can't handle all the possible results of attempting to love with the truth the failure if we do it poorly and hurt them, the defensiveness of their response, the risk of ending the relationship, their harshness, their coldness, them never forgiving you. And then there's the guilt that we've waited too long, that too many years have passed, and we can't tell them the truth. But sadly, that doesn't stop us from complaining or condemning them, does it? You know, Paul is writing to the Corinthian church. And he is uh, he's doing some pretty serious truth-telling. He's addressing some division. He's stepping on toes. He's confronting them with love. It's almost like he's been able to rip off the approval path. But he tells them why that's true. Look what he says again. He says, now it is required that those who've been given a trust must prove faithful. I care very little if I'm judged by you or by any human court. Indeed, I do not even judge myself. My conscience is clear, but that does not make me innocent. It is the Lord who judges me. Now keep that verse up there. Look at what he's saying. He says, I've been given a trust. I have a job to do that involves truth-telling, God's word and telling the truth. And yet he says here, he says, I care very little if I'm judged by you or any human court. Now the word judge there means verdict. And he refers to a human court. Now the Corinthians we're not a human court, okay? He is using a metaphor of the great human struggle for the approval of others. You see, all of us are in the courtroom every day trying to get the approval from others. It's one of the major operating systems of your life. We are, in a sense, on trial every day, working hard to make a case to get worth, to get a good verdict. Arthur Miller was a uh, famous playwright, and uh, he wrote uh, The Death of a Salesman, if you remember that. He wrote The Crucible. He won a Pulitzer Prize for all of his uh, work. He was uh, married to Marilyn Monroe. And Arthur Miller, at the height of his success, said this, I feel like I've carried around this sense of judgment. I could not escape it. I still 
felt like I needed to prove myself to others, to have somebody tell me that I was okay, that I was acceptable, that I was approved up. Paul here says, I care very little about what you think of me. Now, he's not being rude. He's just saying, I'm not in the courtroom. I don't need you to give me a good verdict that I'm a good apostle. This is what Paul Tripp says. I used this a few weeks ago, but I love it. He says, he says pastors are weird. <sighs> Bummer. They are creepy. Some of them are freaks. Why? Because they're trying so hard to validate themselves with performance. Trying hard to squeeze life out of success in ministry. You see, when that is the operating system of your life, when you are on trial, it distorts your life. It's not just pastors. You know, most therapists will say to you, hey, you know what? Don't care about what other people think of you. You need to be free from that. What you need to think about is what you think of you. But Paul here blows that out of the water. He says, I have a low opinion of your opinion of me. But then he says, I also have a low opinion of my opinion of me. He says, my conscience is clear, but that does not make me innocent. You see, every day we define ourselves by two things our successes and our failures. This is the endless litigation that we are trapped in to get a self. We are on trial. And this is true because it's how we measure other people all the time. We measure them based on their successes and their failures. It's almost like we are a nightly news anchor standing at the news desk, taking the papers. Tonight on Channel 5 News, we will be reporting on people's failures and their successes, and we will define them by it. It's true of us because it's how we look at other people. We are trapped in the courtroom of this drama of comparison every day. How do we measure up? Paul, Tim Keller says this, Paul says, my conscience is clear, but that does not make me innocent. He sees all kinds of failures in himself, all kinds of accomplishments, but he refuses to connect them to his identity. So although he knows himself to be the chief of sinners, that fact is not going to stop him from doing the things he is called to do, which is to lovingly confront them with the truth. So how can this be? Well, it's the last line of the verse. Paul says, it is God who judges me. It is God who gives me the verdict that determines my identity. Brothers and sisters, do you understand that in Christ you have the one thing that everybody wants? To get out of the exhausting courtroom of trying to prove yourself. To be free from condemnation. 
to be free to be honest with yourself and honest with other people. Because God's verdict is this in Christ. There is no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. You are His beloved child in whom He is well pleased. And it's not because you're good. It's not because you're doing good. It's because you're His. You don't have to be awesome. Jesus was awesome for you. So the trial is over for you. You can get out of the courtroom and you can love other people with the truth. And when you do it, you don't have to put them on trial. You don't have to condemn them. You're actually helping them get out of the courtroom. Third, truth-telling on yourself. Truth-telling on yourself. You know, Paul... Paul was a man of incredible stature. I think that I would be, I think that you would be hard to disagree that Paul was one of the top 10 most influential leaders in world history. Paul had enormous ballast and tremendous influence and overflowing confidence. Yet, he says in 1 Timothy, Jesus Christ came into the world to save sinners, and I am the chief of sinners. He doesn't say, I was the chief of sinners. He says, I am the chief. Paul is telling the truth on himself. This is off the map. We're not used to someone having incredible confidence, offering the truth that they're one of the worst people. We're not used to someone being totally honest, admitting to all sorts of moral flaws, yet having incredible poise and confidence. Jack Miller was a uh, pastor, he was a missionary, he was a seminary professor, and he was a church planter, planted over 60 churches uh, in Uganda. He was a busy guy. But he had a unique way of answering his critics. When he was criticized unfairly, or anyone made a negative caricature of him, he would turn to that person and say, you don't know the half of it. You're just getting started. Being aware of the darkness in his own heart enabled him to regard their unfair criticism as charitable compared to the true things about him to which his critics were unaware. <laughs> so if you criticize Jack Miller, he'd be like, hey, you don't know the half of it. He was famous for saying, I'm a lot worse than you think I am. Gospel security enables us to tell the truth on ourselves. And it enables us and encourages us to seek out the truth. Look at these verses again. Let a righteous man strike me. It is a kindness. Better is open rebuke than hidden love. Faithful are the wounds of a friend. Both of these verses are strongly implying that a wise person with gospel security is actually going to go out and seek critique. That you're actually going to ask people around you, hey, what's it like for you when I'm angry? What's it like to work with me? Hey, what's it like to be married to me? 
how's it going having me as a parent? Hey, I know I've got some weaknesses uh, that really show up in the workplace. I would love some feedback and critique on what you think, um, how that might uh, hurt our company. Because no matter how bad it is, and whatever they tell you, what's true? They don't know the half of it, right? My son uh, gave me uh, permission to tell this story. I asked him early in the week, I said, Sam, could I, could I use this story? He said, hey, Dad, go for it. Um, when he was like 16 or 17 years old, um, you know, he had a little flip phone, so I'd, I'd call him, you know, he'd be away at a game. And, and, um, but if I'm on the phone with him during that time, if, if I said anything that he disagreed with, He'd hang up on me. <laughs> I'd be like, dude, you don't hang up on people. I mean, he would hang up on his mother, okay? And, and I talked to him about it. I said, son, you, just, you can't hang up on with me because I disagree with you. But it just continued. He'd just hang up on me. And, uh, and I was really angry, so I, I wrote it. I thought, I'm going to write him a letter, try to get through to him. And I put the letter in his room. And, and, and so I wrote this letter, and I just let him have it. I mean, I was, I was shaming him. I was letting him. I was yelling at him in my sentences. I was scolding him. I just spewed anger in every line of the letter. Before I left it in his room, I thought, you know, it might be good to sleep on. And God just laid me out. God convicted me about how wrong my approach to truth-telling was about to be. I did not give him that letter. Had I given him that letter, I'm certain we wouldn't have spoken for months. I wrote him another letter. This is the opening paragraph. Sam... I know that's not easy being my son. It must be harder than I can even imagine because you hang up on me when I disagree with you. Since you hang up on me often, I guess I must be such a jerk since my son does not want to talk to me. I'm realizing that your hanging up is because I must stop listening to you and honestly, you need a dad to listen more than lecture. While hanging up on a person, especially your dad, is rude, I must be blind to how I provoke you to do it. Now, is the problem more with you than me? I don't know. I know I'd like to think so. But that is not where I think I should start. The problem has to be me first. And maybe even me He read that letter and we had one of the best talks. We both repented. We both were honest. I needed to tell the truth of myself. Look at this painting. This is Rembrandt. 
And what is going on there is Judas is throwing the silver. See the silver on the floor before the priest. He's betrayed Jesus for 30 pieces of silver. Now he's trying to return the money. He's full of guilt and shame. Betraying. This was considered Rembrandt's first masterpiece. He's a very young painter at this time. And he rocked the world of art because he was able to use darkness and light in a way people had not ever tried before. It became his, his signature way of doing art. Um, but, but what is most interesting and most shocking about this painting is that Rembrandt painted his own face on the face of Judas. It's a self-portrait. Mel Gibson, famous actor and director, years ago directed a blockbuster movie called The Passion of Christ. Remember that? Now, Gibson uh, actually does appear in the film. He only appears one time. His hands appear in the film. He's the one who's holding the nails and driving them into Christ on the cross. So put yourself in the painting. Put yourself holding the nails. Because then and only then will your truth-telling transform you and the one to whom you speak. Amen. Lord Jesus, the gospel is beautiful. The gospel is disruptive. The cross is staggering. Your grace has the power to transform by cutting and healing. Jesus, would you help us to get the truth on ourselves deeply that we might be salt and light to every broken, disruptive relationship that we have, that we might get out of the courtroom and bring others with us. In the sweet name of Jesus, we pray. Amen. Thank you for listening to our podcast. If you would like more information or would like to help support the local body of Seven Rivers, please visit our website at sevenrivers.org.